Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipnis. The premise of the show has always been lessons that you can't learn in school because as entrepreneurs, there is so much that you cannot learn without actually doing it or without having it happen. But what if you could? What if you could learn things in school? What if you had professors who were not only professors, but were entrepreneurs themselves, were investors themselves, were marketers, were authors that did all of the things that they learned in being entrepreneurs and teaching you in an MBA setting. That's what we have today on the show. I think it'll be a really interesting conversation because we're gonna take a very different angle here on the Entrepreneur's MBA with Adam Kipnis than we have in the past. As always, we are brought to you by powertexting.com and C-Suite Radio. Powertexting.com gives away a free hotel stay to one listener of every show, so stay tuned for that. And thanks to C-Suite Radio for putting the podcast out there for all to hear. Once again, I am Adam Kipnis. You can get my book at freebookfromadam.com. It is eight steps to make more money in your business without spending any money on marketing or advertising. So if your business needs to grow, if you need more clients, grab that free book. It's step-by-step exactly what you can implement and need in your business today. I'm really excited to talk to Kim and Doug Saxton, doctors Kim and Doug, I'm sorry, Kim and Todd Saxton, sorry about that, here on the show. Both are professors at the Indiana University School of Business. Both are investors, both are entrepreneurs, both sit on different boards, different companies, make different investments, talk to people, and work with people every day, just like yourselves, and then they teach those in their MBA program. Kim and Todd, thanks for being here. I really appreciate the time. Our pleasure, and thanks for the kind introduction, Adam. Appreciate it. That's You're awesome. very welcome. You're very welcome. And I'm excited because not only have you done this together, but now you also do it apart. So you learn from each other from the different things that you're doing. How did all of this get started while you're going through school and getting your doctorates and learning and becoming professors? How did the entrepreneurial side for both of you start? Well, I think maybe the entrepreneurial side for us started even earlier than that. I think um, Todd in particular growing up on the Jersey Shore was quite entrepreneurial and both finding ways to spend his time, but use that to make some money. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I, so I was the, literally the, the you know, waif on the street corner selling newspapers. I started when I was seven uh, and then got the, inherited the paper route from my brother uh, which is also part of entrepreneurship, right? The family business and, and helping out the family, et cetera. Um, so I did that and I had the lawn mowing business. My mom bought the lawn mower and in exchange, I mowed our lawn for free, uh, but then got to use the lawn mower to mow other people. So we were talking about snow earlier, Adam, and snow days were great because I could make 20, 30 bucks uh, going around the neighborhood and shoveling people's walks for, you know, three to $5 a shot. And, uh, a little bit more today, but uh, those were some of my entrepreneurial roots as, as a child, at least. But dial forward, when uh, Todd decided to go back and get his PhD, we had been in the consulting arena and we just opened up our own consulting shop and I did that, you know, full time. Um, and you can make some good money that way. So um, that kept us uh, in a house through grad school and vacationing at the shore. Um, it's one of those, it's really a pleasure when 
you know you have an expense coming up and you can find a way to get the money to do it. Well, it's interesting that you say that because find the way is how most businesses start, but they don't teach you that being a consultant is not about consulting. It's about marketing. And it's about getting that next client. How did you, how did you balance the two as you were um, building that consulting business? Yeah. So it's, I always counsel people who want to go into consulting because, you know, our students and others that we know, you know, will occasionally say, Hey, I want to stop working for somebody else. I want to start doing my own gig. And, um, you know, that's the whole challenge, particularly as a solo entrepreneur is that you either have to be book, working on selling and booking stuff, or you have to be doing it. It's really hard to both book and sell at the same time. And so you have this feast or famine, right? you're crazy busy, and then it all falls off and then you have to start selling again. And then you're crazy busy and it all falls off and you start selling again. For us, we had relationships. And, and I think a lot of early entrepreneurship is working on relationships. We had relationships with three or four companies. And so we could go to them and say, hey, you know, we've got some capacity. What do you have coming up? And so we would just talk back and forth between them to try and line some things up. And then once you have clients, um, your clients have repeat needs over time. And so some of them would say, hey, we've got this big project coming up. So we try to slot it in um, with our bandwidth. Now, we also had access to students. So if we had too much demand, we could train and leverage students to do some of the work that we were doing. I would say one of the most important things, Adam, is uh, leave your current employer on good terms because often they will be your first and best source for projects if they need help. So if you've done a good job and you leave on good terms, uh, in many cases for our, our students, our alums who do this, and uh, certainly in our case as well, uh, we left the consulting firm on on good terms, and when they had excess work, uh, we were always there to to take up and 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 fill out that capacity. I, I love that. <laughs> well, I think leave on everything on good terms, right? Yeah, em employers, absolutely. friends, every conversation. If it ends in a good way, it could lead to something else. Because as professors, I'm sure people ask you advice regularly. When you have doctor in front of your name, growing up through in a family of medical doctors, people ask you questions. How do you translate those questions into business versus just giving the answers? Hmm, that's a, that's a great question. And I think we're not looking particularly early on as much at the specific question as who's asking them and, and how do they deal with it. We kind of have what we call a two coffee rule. So we'll meet with anybody twice, whether that's lunch, coffee, something else, uh, and give feedback. Uh, but what we're looking for is people who are coachable, they're actually listening, showing that they try to take on some of the things that we recommend. Uh, and and that, that pattern is, is kind of what we're looking for in terms of behavior. Uh, we don't focus as much on what's the idea or what's the business per se. Now, obviously, in our conversations, we're we're trying to help them shape that idea and, and move it forward. Uh, and just asking some simple questions like, who is this for? And if the answer is everybody, <laughs> they probably haven't gone far enough in, in doing market research and exploring. Uh, or, you know, what do you actually have? What does it look like? How does it fit into uh, kind of the workflow or the, the process that your customer, whether that's a, a consumer or a business, 
uh, asking those simple kinds of questions uh, often kind of helps it shape again the, the idea uh, from just a few questions into whether there's an opportunity. And they say the art of consulting is not about the information, it's about the questions. <laughs> yes. Well, and he left out the other questions that we asked, which is, well, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. um, so we, we try not to spend a lot of time talking. We try to spend a lot of time listening and guiding and helping people answer their own questions. Um, because if you say, oh, I just want to create a startup and I'm going to sell it and get rich, I mean, that's not going to be a long conversation. <laughs> right. Because it's never about the money. If it's about the money, that's how most businesses fail. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and you've worked with hundreds of startups over your careers. What, what commonalities, both good and bad, have you seen in, in those entrepreneurs that you've been working with? Right. This, this shows all about the lessons. What can we learn? What can people implement in their own businesses? And you've seen so many. So what commonalities have you seen ac across your careers? So I think um, we talk in the book about the, uh, the PEP, what we call the PEP model, which is passion, experience, and persistence. And what we see in those entrepreneurs that are successful is, first and foremost, they're passionate about the problem they're solving. As Kim said, not passionate about making money. Uh, <clears throat> they care deeply about either the problem itself or the customers who have that problem. And they're invested uh, in, in helping address that problem. So that's the passion piece. The experience piece is that this isn't something they've kind of seen uh, on, on a beach from a boat somewhere through binoculars. Uh, they, they actually have personal experience or, or through family or friends or others. Uh, so they have, they're starting with a, a better sense of a more grounded sense of what the problem is. And they also, in many cases, because of that experience, have a network that they can leverage uh, and then the last piece is persistence because you almost never get it right on your first try uh, and, and you need to kind of keep hammering away and, and there's a lot of blocking and tackling to becoming a successful entrepreneur. Uh, and those who are not persistent and kind of sticking through that and, and kind of bounce around from one idea to another uh, seldom have the kind of tenacity to, to keep pushing one idea forward and, and get it right and figure out product market fit and, and then be able to take it to market. But persistence has an, another side, and we see this sometimes too, which is sometimes the, the information, the data are pretty clear that this is not the right path. And some entrepreneurs just doggedly stick to doing the same thing, even though there's not traction and they're not getting feedback. They, they believe you have to just be persistent above all barriers as opposed to being able to step back and look and say, well, which of these are really indicators to do something different? And that's where those questions come back in, asking yourself questions. Is this right? Is the timing right? What's working? So sort of self-consulting is a big part of entrepreneurship as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I think more often where what we see is that entrepreneurs are, are ahead of the curve. Like they're thinking of a problem that the market hasn't quite settled on is a problem for them. And so it's a timing issue. And, and so being able to step back and say, hey, wait, maybe the time isn't right yet um, is really hard because the problem's there and you see it. But if you can't get it into the mainstream, then it's, it's, you can't solve it. 
It's very true. And, and the book that, that Todd mentioned is Titanic Effect. Um, definitely go to Titanic Effect slash entrepreneurs dash MBA dot, um, sorry, Titanic Effect slash entrepreneurs dash MBA for more information on that. So I want to jump into the book a little bit because Titanic Effect, and yes, we're talking about the boat, um, doesn't necessarily bring back the greatest of memories, the greatest of visions. Why did you title it that? And tell us a little bit about how we all have a little bit of Titanic in our businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So um, we kind of started this because of our, our years, decades of experience in seeing kind of the mistakes and the problems. And I, I think there's been a lot of celebration of entrepreneurship and uh, almost kind of glorification of the entrepreneurial journey uh, and a lot of kind of how-tos, right? So do the business model, pivot, uh, use the lean startup mentality. And, and those are all good things. But in doing those things, you're also creating kind of this baggage or, or these hidden debts, as we, we call them in the book, uh, that can slow down and, and possibly even sink the venture. Um, so how we got to the Titanic, I'll kind of do the, the quick uh, history chain here uh, of origin story. Uh, we were talking about these initially technical debts and then broader uh, kind of hidden debts across marketing and people, et cetera. And when you think hidden, uh, it's kind of like an iceberg, right? That, that there's the piece above the surface that's pretty evident, but it's all the baggage below that, that a lot of people don't recognize or think about. And, and that's what can really sink you. Uh, so when you think about failed ventures or failing and, and icebergs, uh, many people, their mind kind of goes to the Titanic. So uh, the Titanic effect became the title of our first presentation, uh, boy, five years ago now. And uh, that's what we kind of based the, the metaphor off of. Uh, for me, it was a clever name. Uh, Kim actually did the hard work to do the research and I'll turn it over to you, <laughs> share that piece. Yeah, so I mean, when we think about entrepreneurship, we think about that as new companies, but even large organizations have some innovation. And the Titanic was an, intrapreneurship for the White Star Line. And as we started looking at things, you know, we started seeing great parallels um, in terms of the, they ran out of money, so they got a new investor. And that investor moved the shipyard to his um, nephew's shipyard in Ireland. And another investor suggested an entirely new strategy. Originally, they had gone for speed and he thought, well, let, no, nobody's going for size, so let's go for large. So that's two moving pieces that are hard to execute. And, and then little things like um, they needed so much raw iron that uh, they ran out of raw iron, and so they had to use slag and some of the rivets. Um, and so then you just started seeing, well, you know, wow, they made all the same mistakes that so many startups make all the way to like they were innovating engineering to get this big boat to move in a, a, a manner across the ocean with using a new kind of a steam engine. And they never tested it. Like the first time they tested the engine was when the Titanic left a port. Um, and so how many times do we see that with innovation that, you know, the first time out, um, maybe it didn't work quite as well as the scientists thought it would. <laughs> I, I think that's true of every business where, you know, it's the um, fire ready aim mentality that a lot of entrepreneurs have. And how do we, how do we learn from that? Obviously it's easy to learn in hindsight, but 
one of the big keys to a successful business is learning as you go, not after it fails. How yes, do you counsel your people to do that? Well, one of the things that we have done in the book, I mean, we tried to make this as a tool, not just an idea, but also there's tools. We have something in there called the Iceberg Index, which is a checklist of the 32 mistakes that we have identified that often sink startups. And so, um, and you can download that tool from the website as well, that checklist. It's simply just look at it. I mean, that's our big idea that we're trying to get across is, of course, you're going to have debts. You have to make choices and you don't know what the uh, consequences of those choices are because so much is unknown. But what happens is you don't look back and think about, well, what shortcuts did we take? Um, so even in software, technical debt is manageable if you've kept track of it. And so the Iceberg Index is a tool to help people ask, well, where are we on this? Have we incurred a debt here? How big is the debt? And then the book tells you how to mitigate those debts. Awesome. We're talking with Drs. Kim and Todd Saxton on the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. As I mentioned earlier, powertexting.com gives away one free trip to a listener of every show. So go to podcasttrip.com and enter to win there. Now, as, um, as professors, you have a curriculum that you teach for the school. My wife got her MBA here at Arizona State University, and we sort of went through that together. And it was great information, great learning but it really was information-based. And you probably have a curriculum that, that the school puts out. How do you marry that curriculum and what the school wants you to teach along with the things that you've learned and the development that you can do for students that many other professors can't do because of your experience? How do you marry those two? Well, I, I think first of all, you do need that kind of fundamental training and in, in information, particularly in some disciplines. Um, in our opinion, though, entrepreneurship is a contact sport and kind of doing it entirely within the confines of your dorm room or, or the school boundaries uh, is, is more likely to lead to a titanic kind of story than a, a glowing success. Uh, so we, we do marry kind of the, the more traditional curriculum based and, and we have exercises and, you know, those kinds of things. But we, as much as possible, try and get our students out into the venture community, uh, working with entrepreneurs, rolling up their sleeves, working with young or even larger organizations. Uh, so they kind of get to see how entrepreneurship actually works in the field. Uh, and you know, it's interesting, there's a lot of, uh, as I mentioned before, kind of enthusiasm and support for entrepreneurship right now. Um, but I would say when the students in these programs get out in the community and start working with ventures over a four to six month period, uh, and see what the, that world is really like, probably 25, 30% of them uh, want to run away screaming. And they say, you know what? Entrepreneurship is not for me. But that's great, right? They, they've realized that through their education as opposed to quitting their day job, taking the second mortgage, trying to start a company, and then realizing that they're just deadly afraid of, of uncertainty and, and all the challenges that come with entrepreneurship. Uh, but there's also a uh, another uh, sizable component, probably another third, that embrace it, that love the experience, and it probably hastens their journey. So I, I think that that experiential component, actually getting them out uh, and, and working with entrepreneurs, and, and certainly we're sharing as many of our own experiences as we can and weaving that into the content, um, but I think it's helpful for them to, to hear and see that through uh, other, other founders' lenses as well. 
And I would add that um, in all of our classes, we have some opportunities to work with entrepreneurs. So I teach digital marketing and even just last night, uh, my students were uh, analyzing the digital marketing efforts for a local entrepreneur. Um, and it's a great experience for them because often they come from large companies and then, you know, they look at this website or the, you know, social media marketing that somebody's done and they're like, wow, you know, you've hardly done anything, right? And then the entrepreneur's like, I'm working my butt off and this is the best I can do. So they see that, that, that deliberation or that, that difficulty of how to prioritize. Interesting. Now, now there's a school of thought out there that entrepreneurs are born. They're not built. I would disagree. And I, I think a lot of people listening would disagree, but there is a big school of thought out there. What are your thoughts on entrepreneurs being actually built through education and through learning versus just being born into doing it? So um, I, this, this may sound a little theoretical or academic, but um, I, I think what many people think about when they think about entrepreneurship and focus on uh, is, is your risk propensity. And, and the prevailing idea is that entrepreneurs like to take risks, but actually research has borne out that that's not true at all. Entrepreneurs are no more likely to you know, go to Vegas and bet or, or do other risky kinds of behaviors. Um, and, and risk is probabilistic. So if you think about like games of dice or cards, uh, where you know the probabilities and distribution of outcomes, and you place bets accordingly, and people who like risk might bet a lot of money on rolling, uh, you know, snake eyes or, or uh, you know, two ones, two, two sixes, whatever. Uh, whereas somebody who likes a safe bet might place a smaller amount on a seven. Um, how your brain works and how you process uncertainty is very different, and people can get better at processing uncertainty. Uh, so while I could teach people for years and years, they're never going to get any better at rolling a seven or, or, uh, or a two or whatever, uh, what we can do is arm them with the tools to address uncertainty and systematically navigate it. Uh, so that that may be kind of an academic response, but I think uh, most people have some kind of propensity for uncertainty that can be improved over time through training and exposure. Um, so I, I think there is an, an element that uh, is is by birth and genetics, et cetera, uh, but that everybody is then on a kind of continuum uh, and you can move the needle significantly in, in terms of being comfortable with uncertainty and navigating it. And I think that's perfectly academic. And I, I love that you brought up the, the risk component to it, because one of the things I wanted to ask about is when you're looking at the startups that you've worked with and that you've invested in, it sounds risky to invest in startups. How do you look at, how do both of you look at startups? Because you do it probably a little bit differently and determining your own risk level and seeing sort of the unseen in the future of a business. It's funny you should say that. We have this discussion with some of our friends. So uh, we like to uh, train for endurance events. And so we find ourselves on long bike rides with uh, some others. And one of our friends is a physician and physicians generally are not very uh, risk taking and he is unusually risk averse. And we've had this conversation with him a number of times about how can you invest in startups. We've even had him come to an angel meeting where we were uh, look, looking at uh, startups, startup pitches, and he left going, yep, I can never invest in a startup. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but we really think about it as a diversified portfolio. So we don't put all of our money in startups. Um, we assume that whatever money we put into a startup um, is, is gonna be lost. So we don't risk money that we need. Um, and then we of course have our you know, retirement funds and IRAs and all of, and bank accounts and all that. We're just, we play with other money that we feel like it's worth supporting our local uh, startups, our local economy. And um, we're very thoughtful about what kinds of startups we want to invest in. We tend to prefer life sciences um, because of the impact that it can have. Um, we tend not to like media businesses. I mean, that's just us. Um, uh, so, you know, everybody's got to come up with their own risk portfolio and how they manage that. I think that's so true. And so, so you've got, you do endurance races and you've got startups that you're invested in. You've got your own business. You've got your book. You've got your classes that you teach. I'm sure you have to grade papers. Where, where, where's the time come from? How do you balance the time of all of those competing priorities that are also loves of yours? Well, I, I, what we try to do whenever possible and wherever possible is to kind of bring together different elements. As Kim was saying, while we're training, we're often talking about the businesses we're investing in or, or helping. Uh, we're talking to people like the doctor that Kim mentioned who may not be investing in uh, entrepreneurship, but he himself came up with a, a compound in, in his research that um, has been licensed. And, you know, so we're, we're training while we are also with, you know, thinking and, and talking about ideas and, um, so I, I think that's one piece that we're able to do. Uh, and for, for better in our case, uh, we're able to do that together and kind of leverage e each other a bit. And I think that helps a lot uh, that, that it's a team sport for us. Um, but yeah, wearing, wearing so many different hats uh, does become both a time challenge, but also a focus challenge and, and making sure that we're moving the ball forward uh, on, on the multiple dimensions that we have to uh, while we're wearing so many hats is, is tough. Yeah, I feel sometimes like everything's just in time, um, which is mostly just in time, not after. So that's good. Um, but I do sometimes wonder if I, if we could peel back and be more focused on something, we could probably take something that's already good and make it extraordinary. Um, and right now we're satisfied with having several things that are good. <laughs> and it, I was going to ask that it, in, have you ever sat down and said, this is the thing, you find a business, all right, we're gonna, you know, retire from teaching and we're just gonna go after this one particular thing. Have you had that conversation? And if so, how did you work through it? Well, perhaps it just is that the right either time or idea hasn't hit us yet, because I, I think we, we've had opportunities to do so but really haven't been seriously tempted to kind of quit our day jobs. We, we love the teaching. We love the research that we do. Uh, and because we are active in these other arenas, it, the, the practical experience really informs both our teaching, but also the research that we're doing. So we think there's synergistic benefits from, you know, kind of managing that portfolio of, of activities. Um, and because of that, we just get exposed to great people, really interesting ideas, uh, and are sometimes able to help them move forward. So um, that, that's really what we've kind of settled on 
is helping people kind of realize their own entrepreneurial aspirations, uh, helping them uh, bring those ideas to reality. Uh, so that is, for me, kind of the thing. Then the question is, what's the portfolio of activities that best enables that, uh, allows that to happen in a sustainable way? I would agree. And I would say that we're, we're pretty good about lining some things up. Like, for example, we have been doing some workshops for, with the book. And when we go to an area and do a workshop, we try to combine a workshop with a biking experience uh, the next day. And then, you know, something either school related or, um, you know, other consulting activities or working for a venture. So we try to we try to kind of build multiple pieces into each of the things that we're doing. And we look across the portfolio to see how we can leverage all the different arenas at the same time. And I love the methodical process with, with which you do that, right? It's, it's all about allocation of time, allocation of resources, allocation of brain power, and putting everything in, in the right order in the right way. And I, I love the way you think about it. We're talking with doctors Kim and Todd Saxton, here on the Entrepreneur's MBA. Last question for me, and I think this will be interesting because of what you teach and you teach entrepreneurship. A lot of stuck entrepreneurs who I work with a lot or a lot of startups really know what, what do I do first? What do I do next? And, and that's what they, they don't know and so they continue to do the same thing. How do you two look at that and how do you counsel your clients and the ventures that you work with on what to do first or what to do next? Yeah, so we often see kind of a different problem, which is that there's so much to tackle that they can't figure out where to start. Um, but one of the things that we use, and it's something that we learned from mountain biking, and mountain biking, you, know, you have to know how you're going to get through the part of the course that's right in front of you. Like, you have to be very focused right here. But you have to also be aware of what's next. So they call it the now and the next, because if you take a line through a trail, and that ends you up in a, the, a bad place, then the next is ruined, right? Um, and so we try to look at, at that same thing, like among all the things that have to be done, you know, which is the, the, the keystone, which is unlocks the next couple of steps. Um, identifying that first activity is really important. And sometimes that first activity is, which is the easiest to execute? Sometimes that first activity is, which is the most important? And sorting that out because also, entrepreneurship is so long and difficult, you need some wins and you need some early wins. So you have to balance between what's the most important thing to do and what's the easiest thing to do. While being aware of where you're headed so that you are taking steps in the right direction and give yourself room to pivot as you get there. I don't know if that was confusing, but it's, it, it varies so much. There's no one first thing that has to be done each one is very contextual. No, I think that's really helpful because it's that, that first thing is a sticking point for a lot of people. So, you know, it, it's all about how to think about it rather than just actions important, but smart actions even better. Um, so I think it's really important in how you think about it. Todd, thoughts for you? Yeah, so I think there, there's actually a book, uh, Eli Goldratt, I think it is, The Theory of Constraints. And, and a lot of successful entrepreneurship is being able to kind of disentangle the, the morass of challenges and say, this is the next constraint that I have. And until I 
address that constraint, all of the other things can't move forward. And that's one of the things that I think we're pretty good at because it, you get better with experience over time at kind of saying, okay, let's try and declutter all of this mess. And, and what is the one thing that you could do today and tomorrow, that's the now, that allows you to get to the next, which is maybe the next customer, the next funding source, et cetera. <clears throat> and I think when people get stuck, it's because they haven't identified that kind of keystone piece that that is the key to unlocking uh, the the again multifaceted kind of steps that need to be taken to really move the venture forward. I love it, and and I love the conversation. We could do this all day. I really appreciate you both for being here, Kim and Todd. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the knowledge, and and thanks for changing the conversation a little bit and thinking about it in a very different way than just the let's go out there and do this thing and see what happens. Um, I, I think it really will be great for the listeners, and, and I had a great time. Thanks to you both for being here. Uh, delighted to do so, and thanks for hosting, and great, great questions and conversation, Adam. We appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. Very cool, and thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Entrepreneur's MBA Podcast. Look forward to having you on the next one. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business, at www.freebookfromadam.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>